All right, good morning. Hallows Church, it is good to be with you in this way on this Sunday morning. Thank you for joining us. My name, my name is Jeff, and I serve as one of the pastors here with the Hallows Church. And uh, I'm very much looking forward today to leading us through our study of the scriptures as we're continuing on this journey through the book of Acts, as we're very close to wrapping up our journey uh, through the book of Acts. In fact, uh, next week will be the final message of this sermon series we've been journeying through, and it's been a good journey. And so I hope you'll uh, open your scriptures today to Acts chapter 27. I hope you'll plan on joining us next week as we wrap up this series. Now, most of you probably know what an albatross is, I believe. An albatross, of course, is a, uh, it's a bird. It's a very big bird, a very big seabird, a seagoing bird. In fact, the albatross is one of the biggest birds. It has one of the biggest wingspans of any bird that lives today. Its wings can reach... Uh, a wingspan from tip to tip of 10 to 11 feet uh, in wingspan. And that's, uh, that's a very large bird, if you think about it. And the very large, large size of the albatross and its long wingspan creates some very unique challenges for this bird. Now, the albatross, it lives out at sea on the water most of the time. Most all of the time, the albatross lives out at sea. But every 18 months, the albatross migrates. It migrates, it returns to land over some pretty long distances and they return to land so they can nest, so they can lay their eggs and reproduce and take care of their babies. But when the albatross returns to land after all this time at sea, these very big birds are very out of practice. They are not used to coming in for landings on dry land. And so their landings are not what you would call smooth or graceful at all. In fact, you can get on YouTube and see some uh, pretty comical videos of these birds uh, coming into land. They come in looking pretty unstable, pretty unsure of themselves, a bit clumsy, in fact. And often they hit the ground pretty hard at a pretty good speed. They kind of hit the ground, they skid, they, so they tumble a few times occasionally before uh, getting up and getting their bearings and uh, getting on with their business. But not only are their landings a sight to behold, their takeoffs can be pretty comical too. You watch them trying to take flight, they're flapping uh, their wings uh, very hard, they're running along the sand, but they're not really getting anywhere, vertically speaking. They only get a foot or two off the ground before coming back uh, down to the ground. They struggle uh, very much to take flight because of their size and because of their weight. And so how does the albatross do it then? How do they get off the ground and take flight and make progress in getting where they need to go if this, so their size and weight is such an issue and such a problem? Well, the albatross, it has to wait. It has to wait for the right conditions. In fact, it has to wait for stormy conditions. It has to wait for the windy and the turbulent conditions of a storm. And the reason for that is because it is only in the turbulent conditions of a storm that these large and lanky birds can get enough lift under their wings to get off the ground and to, and to take flight. And once the albatross uses the storm in this way to get off the ground, they continue to use the storm and its uh, strong currents really to stay off the ground and to soar. They, they actually can soar very gracefully once they do get up off the ground, once they're in the air, they can soar very gracefully using these stormy conditions for very uh, long distances without really even having to flap their wings very much at all. 
Now, you might think a uh, storm, a strong storm like this with strong winds would uh, take a large bird like this out of action, really, and prevent it from going anywhere and prevent it from migrating, but it's actually, it's actually the other way around. Stormy conditions do not sideline the albatross at all. Rather, stormy conditions actually serve the albatross in this interesting way. In fact, when the weather conditions are calm and smooth, the albatross often finds itself uh, grounded and stuck in one place. When the conditions are only calm and smooth, the albatross struggles, in fact, to make much progress at all. And so in a very real way, when the storm hits and the conditions get turbulent, the storm does not represent an obstacle for the albatross. Rather, the storm represents an opportunity for the albatross. And as we step into today's passage in a very interesting way, we're going to see the Apostle Paul in the midst of a severe storm, approaching the storm with a similar sort of mindset. Paul and the people he's with on this ship, they get hit and they get hit hard by a, by a very severe storm. And for most of the people on that ship with Paul, uh, they were overwhelmed by this storm and they were desperate and frantic within this storm. But Paul, as he often does, he was, he was steady in this storm. He was steady through this storm because Paul, as he often does, he was able to approach this storm and every storm in his life, not necessarily as an obstacle to be feared, but as an opportunity. It was an opportunity to exercise faith and to, to really help others do the same. And so let's think about this. Let's talk about this uh, for a bit. This is important for us because I think, I think we would all agree that we find ourselves right now in the midst of a very stormy and turbulent time in human history. In fact, a very serious storm, unlike anything we've seen, has come upon us quite quickly and quite unexpectedly. This global pandemic, the uh, coronavirus, it has been wreaking havoc on a global scale and it continues to cause much grief and much loss and much change in the, in the most basic ways of how we carry out our lives. And this pandemic, this coronavirus does not seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. And of course, other storms have continued to roll in since then, disrupting and disturbing the status quo in many, many ways and giving us much to think about and, and talk about. There seems to be a very uh, collective uh, unrest by many for many different reasons over the state of our nation and the actions of those who are leading our cities and our states and our countries. We've been given much to consider during these times as a culture and as a country concerning race and police and protests and politics and how best we can move into the future as a society. And there is much heated discussion, debate, disagreement about exactly how we go about doing that. Many claim to have the answers and the solutions to the problems that plague us. But to be honest, it is not, uh, it is not a simple thing these days to, to know who to listen to and who to, who to believe and who to trust. There seem to be many different voices 
and so many different agendas that are vying for our attention. And so we are in a stormy season to be sure in more ways than one. And interestingly enough, Paul is going to remind us here today how to stay steady uh, in all of this and through all of this. And one way he's going to do that is by reminding us that of the many different voices that are vying for our attention and for our allegiance in the middle uh, of the storm, there is one voice and only one voice that we need to always listen to and trust above all of the others. And so let's dive into this narrative today. It's a fascinating story. And let's see what we can learn from the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 27. Now, as you probably know, we're in the home stretch, as I mentioned, you do know, because I mentioned it earlier, we're in the home stretch of this journey through the book of Acts. We have one more week to go, one more passage to go. And Paul's situation, as we open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 27, does not seem to be improving much at all over recent weeks. At this point, Paul is in custody. He's in custody. Uh, he's in the custody of a Roman centurion named Julius, we're told in the first couple of verses of chapter 27. And Paul is essentially a prisoner here, along with some other prisoners, we're told, who are also being transported by ship uh, from Jerusalem, 1,400 miles away, uh, to Rome. And we know uh, from recent weeks in this sermon series that Paul uh, was in custody and Paul was headed to Rome because Paul was accused of uh, some pretty serious charges by the Jewish leaders, by the Jewish religious establishment. We saw a few weeks back in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, that Paul was accused uh, by the Jewish religious establishment of being a plague, an agitator among all the Jews throughout the Roman world, and a ringleader, it says, of the sect of the Nazarenes. And so the Jewish establishment, they wanted to bring Paul down in the same way they brought uh, Jesus down, because Paul will not stop talking about Jesus and because the early church was uh, getting traction and really exploding and that was seen as a real threat to their positions of power and influence. And so what did they do? They, of course, go after the ringleader as they see him. But Paul, he knew he could not get a fair trial in Jerusalem and so he appealed to Rome. He appealed uh, to Caesar to be heard on the matter there. You see, Paul was technically a Roman citizen by birth, and he was a Roman citizen by birth because his father was a, a Roman citizen. So he was able to do this. He appealed to Caesar to be heard and to be uh, tried in Rome, and that request was granted. And this passage, um, in this passage, Paul is beginning the very long and the very arduous journey to Rome in Roman custody for this reason. And we see in the opening verses of chapter 27, they boarded a ship and they sailed for a little while before boarding a second ship, an Alexandrian ship. It was an Egyptian ship. It was a grain ship. It was full of grain, probably corn. And this ship was on its way to Rome. And this uh, would have been no small boat that they boarded. One of the ways we know that is because later in this passage, Paul tells us that there were 276 people on board that ship. And uh, historical records um, about these times tell us that a grain ship like this might have been up to 140 feet long and 35 feet wide. It would have not been a very nimble ship at all. It would have not, not been an easy ship to navigate through uh, any, any storm that might come upon it. And so Paul, 
and his group, they got on that second ship and were told that they sailed for several more days and were also told that they were having some difficulties due to the weather. And so they made another stop near a city called Lycia. And there in Lycia, they had an important decision to make whether to stay there in Lycia for the entire winter or whether to continue their journey to a what would have been a more desirable location. And we're told in verse 9 that uh, Paul had some advice. He had some input to give. Even though he was not in charge here, he, he spoke up. And listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. Paul gave his advice and told them, Men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward disaster and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Now, Paul, he has been on um, many, many ships. He has taken many missionary journeys up to this point. Some suggest that he has sailed over 3,000 miles up to this point. So he does, he does know something about the sea. But again, Paul was not in charge. But even though he was not in charge, he spoke up. He, he, felt, he spoke up when he felt he needed to speak up. And he said, don't do it. He said, he said you're asking for trouble if you proceed. But the owner of the ship thought differently, the captain thought differently, and the centurion, it says, went along with the captain and the owner, and they made uh, the decision to set sail. And beginning in verse 13, we see what happened when they did. It actually started out okay, but it didn't last long. Look at verse 13. It says, when, when a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But... But before long, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Now, of course, they did not have the benefit of uh, weather reports or satellite images. There was no GPS. And the Mediterranean Sea at this time of year, it was known to get very violent and very dangerous uh, very quickly, and that seems to be exactly what was happening here. In fact, in every way, you can think of this fierce wind that rushed upon them called the Northeaster as really no different than a hurricane. In fact, the Greek word, uh, fierce wind there, is the word uh, typhonikos, typhonikos, from which we get our English word uh, typhoon. And so this was a very serious storm and a very serious situation, and and the ship, we're told, gave way to this fierce wind, and it was driven along by it. And then as you read the next few verses, from verses uh, 17 to 19, you get a sense of just how desperate this situation was becoming. Listen to what is happening here. It says, After hoisting it up, it being the skiff or the dinghy, the small boat that was uh, attached to uh, the ship, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. Fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were being driven along. Because we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And so the crew and these people on the ship, they are taking very 
desperate measures. They girded the ship, and, and this involved passing cables under the hull of the ship, uh, literally to try to hold that ship together as the waves uh, pounded upon it. It also says they lowered the drift anchor. This would have acted as a sort of break for the ship to kind of slow things down. And they were jettisoning cargo and tackle, it says, throwing anything and everything they could do without overboard to try to lighten the load and try to, to, try to um, save themselves. And then in verse 20, look at what it says. It says, uh, for many days, neither sun nor stars appeared and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope was fading that they would be saved. And so they had clearly uh, lost their bearings at this point. They relied, of course, on the sun and the stars to navigate, and they could not see the sun or the stars for many days. And so it seemed like only a matter of time before something catastrophic was going to happen, and all hope, we're told, was fading. And it is at this point, this is where Paul, the prisoner, stands up and speaks up and right in the middle of this storm begins to infuse hope into those who had none. And as we move through this passage as we, uh, and as we pay attention to how Paul approaches this situation and approaches this storm, Paul is going to show us three things about how he stays steady through the storm and how we can stay steady through ours. We're going to see Paul's perspective about the storm, his purpose within the storm, and the presence, the presence of God with him during the storm. First, Paul's perspective about the storm. Now at a time when all hope was fading, Paul stood up among them and he spoke up and he basically said first, he basically said, I told you so. He said, you should have listened. In verse 21, look at what it says. It says, you should have followed my advice not to proceed. And so everything that was happening to them at this time, this storm that was hitting them uh, so hard and all the loss and damage that was happening was, was very much happening as a direct result of the poor decisions of other people. And sometimes that's the way it happens, isn't it? Sometimes the storms in our lives might be a result of our own poor choices, but other times the struggles and the sufferings in our lives or in the lives of other people, they come about as a consequence of the bad decisions made by other people. And that is certainly the case here in this uh, situation. And Paul sees fit to point it out, but he also has much more to say. He moves on. Fairly quickly, he has much more to say and much more to do. Listen to uh, verse 22. Paul says this, he says, Now I urge you to take courage, because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only the ship. For last night, an angel of God, and, I'm sorry, for last night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, Don't, don't be afraid, Paul. It is necessary for you to appear before Caesar. And indeed, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. So take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. But we have to run aground on some island. And so one thing we see here from the Apostle Paul 
is that in the middle of this storm, Paul was, uh, he was very much listening uh, for God, wasn't he? He was also hearing from God, and Paul was also exercising faith in God. And Paul was not keeping any of this to himself either. He stood up and he spoke up about it. And first Paul says, you should have taken my advice, but, but then he says, nevertheless, we're all going to uh, survive this. He says, we will all survive the bad decisions that were made. We will suffer greatly because of them, but we will survive. The ship will not, but you and I will, he says. And then Paul tells him how he was so sure of this. He says, last night, God, God told me so. An angel of God told me that I would make it to Rome and that you would make it to Rome too. And I believe it will happen just as he said. And you should know that for Paul to say this, to speak on behalf of God in this way, was a, um, it was a very serious matter. Because the Old Testament taught quite clearly in Deuteronomy chapter 28 that anyone who presumed to speak a prophecy in God's name and that prophecy did not come true, that, that prophet was a false prophet and was to be put to death. And so Paul would not have said this if he had not... Uh, if God had not given him a very clear message about this. And so let's think about this uh, for a moment. This gets, this is actually gets really, it gets really interesting. God had told Paul, um, none of you are going to die, right? The ship is going down, but you will all be saved. In other words, this was God saying to Paul, your future and the future of the other 275 people on board with you, it is fixed. Your future in this regard is determined and your future and their future is determined because I have determined it, God says to Paul. And Paul believed God and his promise. And he told the people on board that ship about the promise. He says, your future is certain, he says, so take courage. Now, we do not know how all of the people on the ship uh, would have received Paul's words, right? Some probably, some probably thought he was a bit crazy. Some probably didn't pay much attention at all, but perhaps some others found hope in his words and wondered about this God. Now, what is so interesting here to me is that Paul is what, uh, is what Paul does with this information that God has given to him. What does this certain outcome and this fixed future that God has promised to Paul, what does it mean for Paul and how he approaches the storm that had come upon them? So does Paul sit back and wait and say, okay, God, I believe you. I trust you. Go ahead. Go ahead and save us. I'll be here watching to see how you do it. I'm sure it's going to be awesome. But that's not what Paul does at all. In fact, we're told in verses 27 and 28 that they came to a point where the crew and the sailors knew that they were approaching land and they, they feared that the ship was about to run aground on the rocks. And, and listen to what they did. Listen to what they did and listen to what Paul did in verses 30 to 32. It says, some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, Unless these men stay on the ship, you cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. And so that's, did you catch that? What is that? What is, what is Paul doing here? 
Paul says it's absolutely certain that we're all going to be saved, all of us. God said so, and God is in control, and I believe him. But the very same Paul, eight verses later, says, if you don't stop these sailors from leaving the ship, we're all going to die. And so what is that? If God had told Paul it was absolutely certain that everybody was going to be saved, and Paul believed uh, God, why then did he stop these sailors from leaving the ship? Why didn't he just let them do what they wanted? Who cares what they do, right? The outcome is fixed. God said so. We're all going to be fine. In fact, why don't we all go out snorkeling? But that's not Paul's approach at all, right? That's not Paul's perspective at all. Paul seems to be saying very clearly here that God has determined the future. The future is fixed and at the very same time, he seems to be saying very clearly here, I have a part to play in it. My decisions matter in making that future happen. But how can, how can that be? Can that be? We struggle really to believe that these two things can be true at the same time because they uh, they seem contradictory. They don't seem to make sense together. Doesn't it have to be one or the other, uh, right? Either or. In our minds, if God is totally in control and the future that he's promised to us is fixed, then, then what we do doesn't matter so much. Our choices don't really matter. He's going he's gonna to make it happen no matter what. Or... If we believe that what we decide and what we do matters and our choices make a difference, doesn't that mean that God is somehow limiting himself or holding back in some way or is not completely in control? But Paul, he won't have any of that. The Bible won't have any of that. Paul and the Bible say it's not one or the other. It's not either or. It is instead both and. God is absolutely in control. He alone is writing history and running history and our choices absolutely matter and we're absolutely responsible for them. And so to say that God is completely in control and completely sovereign and the future is completely fixed is not to say that God is 100% in charge and 0% of, of what I do uh, matters. And it's not 100% I'm free and I'm determining my future and 0% God is in charge. And it's not 50-50, it's not 80-20, it's not 20-80. Paul says it's 100-100. God is 100% in charge and in control. And you and I are 100% responsible for what we, what we do. In other words, you have an active an essential part to play in the future that God is actively and exhaustively orchestrating before us. And so again, how can that be? How can both be true? Well, both can be true because the Bible and passages like this teach us that both are true and because the Bible and passages like this and many other passages teach us as well that that is how big, that is how big our God is. Now, this is mind-bending biblical truth, isn't it? It's paradoxical, it's mysterious, it is complex. But it is actually uh, quite practical, too, if you think about it. Now, if I'm going to be honest with you, in this stormy season that we're in, I have grown weary at times. I have felt, at times, quite stuck 
sitting at home most of the time, not getting out, not seeing many people. Part of me has been tempted in times like these to say, God, I, I know you're sovereign. I know you've got this. I know that you are in control of, of all that's going on around us in this strange and stormy time. So I'm just going to uh, step back a little. I'm going to sit back a little bit and let you work things out. There's, there's not much really that I can do that is going to make much of a difference or matter much in the grand scheme of things. And Paul, he says no. Paul says in this passage, he reminds me in this passage, that's not how uh, this works. What I do and what I don't do matter. And I'm responsible for, for both. And so I need to keep my eyes and ears open during these times. I don't need to sit back and step back. I need to, um, I need to stop seeing the things going on around me as an annoyance or an obstacle. And I need to start seeing... Uh, what's going on around me as an opportunity, as an opportunity to trust God and to, to love and to serve my neighbors and my neighborhoods. Our God has given to you and I as Christians many incredible promises about our futures. And he has told us that our future is fixed, it is determined, and it is beautiful beyond our wildest imagination. He's promised us that no matter what happens in this life, through every storm in this life, including the one we're in right now, we will make it through to the future that he has determined for us. And I believe him, and together we believe him, but we are never to use, we're never to use his promises about what he tells us about our futures as an excuse to sit back and do nothing for him in the present. And Paul is going to show us the way here uh, in an interesting way. We don't see Paul sitting back. We see Paul very much stepping up. We actually see Paul finding purpose within the storm. We, find, we see Paul finding his part to play in what he understands to be the certain and determined plan of God. And so the, let's, let's talk now about the purpose within the storm. Look at Look at what Paul says and does, beginning in verse 33. It says, When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. So I urge you to take some food, for this is for your survival, since none of you will lose a hair on your, from your head. After he said these things, he had taken some bread and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And after he broke it, he began to eat. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. And so sometimes the purpose that God has for us when the storm hits is about those around us. And God wants to use us in the middle of the storm for the good of those around us. And we certainly see that here. We see Paul finding purpose in the middle of the storm by ministering to those around him who needed it. And so Paul, he's paying attention. He knows he has a part to play. He, even though the future is fixed, Paul sees in the middle of the storm an opportunity and he, he acts, he takes it. 
He's feeding people, encouraging them. He's comforting them. He's counseling them. He's praying for them and pointing them to his God. And it mattered, right? It made a difference. They were strengthened. They were energized. They got back to work, uh, lightening the load of the ship so that they might be saved. Sometimes the purpose God has for us in the middle of the storm is to love and to serve the people who are being most affected by that storm. And that's the main reason our church started the uh, our COVID-19 relief fund a few months ago so that we could help the people around us in our church and in our city to, to stay afloat, uh, to stay afloat during this time. And because of the ways that you've stepped up and given toward this relief fund, thank you very much. We have been able to help dozens of families with tens of thousands of dollars of assistance due to you and your generosity. So thank you. And if you are able to join us in that effort to, to give toward that fund, you can do so on our website or by reaching out to us. Or if you have needs that you might need to be a recipient of that generosity, please, please reach out, connect with us, and, and let's talk about that. Now, this is also why we just finished up a food drive just a couple of weeks ago for the Nourishing Network. Um, they have been one of our partners in this city for, for many years, and we partner with them to uh, help keep meals on the table for families who are struggling in our city in light of all that's going on and to, to help them to keep their heads above water. And so thank you as well for your participation and your generosity in, 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 in doing that and together loving our neighbors in need in these sorts of ways. And I'd like to encourage you too in your own life to uh, keep your eyes open, to be intentional about what is going on around you and to consider, if you're not already, how God might want to use you during these times for the good of others as this stormy season continues. Now, other times, God uh, not only wants to use us for the good of others during a stormy time, but sometimes God intends to, to leverage the storms in our lives, not so much for the good of others, but for our own good and for our own growth. God often uses the storms that come upon us in our lives in order uh, for us to grow in our relationship with him, in order for us to grow in our spiritual maturity and in our spiritual perspective. Now, you don't really see uh, that with Paul so much in this passage, but you see it elsewhere in many other passages, and you, you see it all over the Bible, really. You see God using the storms and the sufferings that we experience in this life to grow us, to humble us, to stretch us, to challenge us, to change us. And I trust and hope that he's doing that during this time with, with each one of you at some level. Now, very early on when the coronavirus was uh, just kind of flaring up in our country and when the coronavirus was uh, really ravaging New York City in a very significant way, there's a woman there named Sarah Borns, and she's a pastor, actually, and she penned a powerful poem about the coronavirus and the very profound effects it was having uh, from her perspective on her own heart and the hearts and lives of those around her. I'd just like you to listen to these words that she wrote. She says, we've all been exposed, not necessarily to the virus, we've been exposed by the virus. 
Corona is exposing us, exposing our weak sides, exposing our dark sides, exposing what normally lays far beneath the surface of our souls, hidden by the invisible masks we wear, now exposed by the paper masks we can't hide far enough behind. Corona is exposing our addiction to comfort, our obsession with control, our compulsion to hoard, our protection of self. Corona is peeling back our layers, tearing down our walls, revealing our illusions, leveling our best laid plans. Corona is exposing the gods we worship, our health, our hurry, our sense of security, our favorite lies, our secret lusts, our misplaced trust. Corona is calling everything into question. What is the church without a building? What is my worth without an income? How do we plan without certainty? How do we love despite risk? Corona is exposing me, my mindless numbing, my endless scrolling, my careless words, my fragile nerves. We've all been exposed, our junk laid bare, our fears made known, the band-aid torn, the masquerade done. So what now? What's left? Clean hands, clear eyes, tender hearts. What Corona reveals, God can heal, she says. Come, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And so what Corona reveals, God can heal. God is most certainly um, speaking to us during these stormy times. And so I have a question for you. And that is, are you, are you listening? What are you hearing from him? What is he revealing to you? What is he exposing in you? Are you asking these questions? Are you listening? Now for me, my first instinct during a storm is to kind of batten down the hatches and to, to hold on tightly to what is most valuable. But God has been challenging me lately to, to reconsider and to consider what is truly valuable. What is meaningful? What is lasting? He's been challenging me in how I see my life and how I see my family and how I see my future and the level of control or the lack thereof that I actually have over any of these things. God has been disturbing me in a sense and disrupting and dislodging various things in my heart during these times, certain false assumptions, hidden biases and blind spots, things that have been lurking beneath the surface and really kind of uh, weighing me down without me even knowing it, things that needed to be jettisoned, thrown overboard for my own good and for my own growth. And so the storm is not always to be seen as an obstacle or as an annoyance. In, in some cases, it needs to be seen as an opportunity as an opportunity that can actually serve our progress, right? Just like with the albatross. Sometimes the storm is the very thing that enables us to find the lift that we need to take flight in some new ways and uh, so that we might see things from a different perspective and so that we might uh, make progress in some new uh, directions. And so are you allowing God to Leverage this stormy season for your own good and for your own growth. 
what these stormy times reveal. God can heal, but you have to play a part in it. It requires your participation and your cooperation with him. Okay, back to the passage here. What happens next is um, chapter 27 comes to a close. As you heard read, the ship that they were on, uh, it ran aground on a sandbar off the coast of a little island called Malta in a place that to this day is called St. Paul's Bay. The ship was destroyed. Just as God had said, the pounding of the waves broke the ship apart, but all 276 passengers in the boat swim to shore and not one of them is lost, right? Just as God had said. And then in the opening verses of chapter 28, we don't have a lot of time to get into them really in detail, but Luke tells us that the local people of Malta welcomed all of them in, showing them warm hospitality. We're told that Paul prayed for them and ministered to them. We're actually told that many who had diseases on the island they were healed through Paul's prayers and through his ministry. We're told they stayed there for three months until the end of winter before catching a ride on another ship that was headed to Rome. And then in verse 14 of chapter 28, Luke uh, says, after all this, they finally got there. Listen to what it says. Uh, Luke 28, verse 14. And so we came to Rome, he says. Now the brothers and sisters from there had heard the news about us. They had come to meet us um, as, as far as uh, the forum of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so God got Paul through the storm just like he said he would. And Paul stayed steady through the storm, right? And arrives at last in Rome. And next week, our final week, in this sermon series called Movement. We'll see what happens with Paul in the end. But as we finish up this week, let's talk for a few moments about, about Paul, about how Paul does this, how Paul did this. We did talk about uh, Paul's perspective. We talked about purpose when it comes to the storm, but let's talk about presence. Presence within the storm. This was this was Paul's secret to staying steady through the storm, and this should be ours too. One thing that we know is true is that the very same storm that might make one person might break another. The same storm that wrecks and ruins one might refine and define another. And so none of this is automatic, and we must consider this. Some people come out of a storm battered and bitter and they're never the same, but other people can come out of the same storm stronger and, and wiser. And it seemed, uh, that seemed to be the case again and again with Paul. And so how was Paul able to come out of so many storms and so much suffering in his life better off instead of worse off, spiritually speaking and psychologically speaking? We do know that there was much suffering and struggle in Paul's life. This was his third shipwreck, in fact. He had endured uh, many things, many beatings, imprisonments. He was stoned at one point. There was much struggle and strife in his life as a follower of Jesus, and yet he always seemed to stay remarkably stable and, and steady. And in this passage, I think we see, see a few of his secrets of how he did that. 
Now, one we've already seen and talked about a little bit, and that is how Paul believed God. He, he trusted in the promises that God had given to him. And if we are to weather the storms of this life, we must do the same, right? We need to also allow uh, those promises that God has given to us about our futures to affect and change the ways that we face our lives in the present. But another thing that we see here that kept Paul steady uh, is that in the middle of the storm, in the middle of every storm, Paul was consciously aware of, of the presence of God with him. Remember when Paul was talking about how he had received that message from God during the night, the message that everyone on the ship was going to be okay. Do you remember how he describes God in verse 23? He says this, he says, the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me. That's, uh, that's very moving language. It's covenantal language. You see, when God enters into a covenant with his people, he says, now you are, you are my people. You are, you are mine and, and I am yours. That's covenantal language. And so Paul is saying, this is how my God sees me. I am his and he is mine. I am his, I am his treasured possession and he, he is with me. And so friend, is that how you see yourself in relation to God as his treasured possession? Uh, you are his and he is yours. You belong to him and he, he belongs to you. Is that how you see yourself in relation to him? That is how he wants you to see yourself in relation to him in light of the gospel. And so this language here, this is very possessive language. It is very personal language. You really don't say that about another person. You don't say another person is yours and you are theirs unless there's a certain depth and intimacy to the relationship, right? You might say that about your spouse. You might say that about your kids, but you wouldn't ordinarily say that about many people at all. But that is how Paul refers to God. Even in this desperate moment, in the, in the middle of the storm, he says he's mine. He's committed to me and he's with me, not because of me, but in spite of me. And, and Paul, he marvels at that continually uh, throughout his writings. And so in the middle of the storm, there's Paul's secret, right? One of his secrets, he leans into his identity as a treasured possession of God, as a child of God, trusting in the promises of God and the, and the presence of God and the providence of God. And friends, unless you take these truths in, unless you think these truths through and believe them, believe them deeply, you will struggle when the storms hit. Quite often when the storm hits and bad things happen, it's quite natural for people to start questioning God, right? Whether he cares about you, whether he's angry at you, whether he's punishing you because, well, you just can't seem to stop stumbling in your sin. Normally when the storm comes and bad things happen, the average person does not feel loved. They feel rejected. They do not feel close to God. They feel far from God, but that's not at all what Paul says. You should be thinking and feeling in the middle of the storm. Instead, we see Paul in the middle of the storm and in spite of the storm, not questioning God, not questioning himself either, but instead saying, I belong to him. I am his. And 
He is with me and he is, he is for me. And so that is Paul's secret, one of them at least. But, but how can Paul be so sure about all this? And how can we be so sure about all this too, that he is with us in the storm, that he will get us through every storm to the other side? Now, most of you, I think, are familiar with the story of Jonah. But do you know that Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 refers to himself as the true Jonah, as a greater Jonah? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, As Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. But he says, but a greater Jonah is here. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is calling himself the the greater Jonah, the ultimate Jonah. And so what does that mean? Well, if you think about what happens in the story of Jonah, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh to tell them about him, right? God said, go to Nineveh to preach, but Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like the people of Nineveh. And so Jonah got on a ship going in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And God was not pleased at all with Jonah and his actions, so God sent a storm God sent a storm to hit that boat, and it was, it was really a storm of God's anger and God's wrath. And so the storm is coming after Jonah, and when, when Jonah sees the storm coming, he knows it's for him. He knows he deserves it, but he also knows that that storm would wipe out everyone else on that ship. And so he says to the sailors on that ship, he says, throw me in, throw me into the storm. Let the storm consume me, and then you will be saved. And that's exactly what they did. They do that, and he is. He is consumed, and they are saved. And so when Jesus says, a greater Jonah is here, he's saying, there was a storm coming for you too, that you deserve too, a storm of God's wrath. Every human being on this planet is a sinner who falls short of the glory of God and the standards of God. We do not love God with all of our hearts. We do not love our neighbors as ourselves. Each one of us deserves the storm of God's judgment and God's justice. But Jesus says, the reason that I've come is to take on that storm for you. Jesus says, I was consumed by that storm so that you wouldn't have to face it, so that you could be saved. And if you believe that, if you believe in me in that way, then that storm is, is no longer coming at you. That storm is no longer coming for you ever. Not only that, Jesus says, if you believe in me in that way, then you're mine and I am yours and I am with you in every storm. And he, he knows what you're going through no matter what. He, he has been there. Of all of the religions in the world, only Christianity says that God knows what it is like to suffer. And so have you uh, been betrayed? Have you been rejected? Have you experienced pain and loss? Are you facing poverty? Have you been the victim of violent injustice? Are you facing death? Have you lost a child? So has God. So has God on the cross. He has faced all of those things, and so he understands. He's really, truly with us in our suffering. He is there. He has faced all of those things. And if you believe in him, any storm that may come upon you 
you can be sure, is not any sort of punishment. It is never punishment. Rather, it is part of the brokenness of this world that God says he will ultimately redeem and restore and reverse in due time. But in the meantime, he says, I am with you and you are mine. Friends, we don't always know the reasons that God allows storms and sufferings to go on in our lives and in this world. But one reason that it cannot be is indifference. Because he got involved, didn't he? He is involved. Jesus took on the ultimate storm so that you and I might be saved from it and so that, so that he might be with you and so that you might be his and he might be yours. And as you see that, and as you savor that, and as you rely upon his presence and his power uh, in your life, he will get you through any and every storm that comes your way or that comes my way. That is a promise. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the book of Acts. Thank you for this passage, which has a lot to teach us, God, about staying steady in these stormy times. God, would you give us grace today to have the right perspective, a biblical perspective about all that is happening during these times? Would you give us also purpose during these times to love and to serve um, those around us? God, would we not sit back and step back? Would we step up and take action? And would you would you also use these times for our own good and for our own growth? And, and would we cooperate with you in that? God, we thank you that you are with us, that you are for us, that we are yours, and that you are ours. God, we love you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have made all of this possible. Amen.